This is the Frog for Life podcast. I'm your host, Rob Berline. We also found out about an app called PhotoMath where students could just take a picture of it and it would solve it for them. Because I was thinking, wow, these students are doing really incredible. Like, I'm really impressed. And I was talking, I was like, yeah, like, man, that's usually like one of the most difficult things that we teach. I'm so surprised that people did so well considering the circumstances. And this boy was like, Miss Whitaker, you realize that everybody's just taking pictures of that and it solves it for them. That is the voice of Mickey Whitaker, who was named the Dripping Springs ISD Teacher of the Year. Mickey will talk about the lessons she learned about teaching during a pandemic and how she plans to apply those lessons. We are very excited today to be joined by one of the great educators that TCU has produced, Mickey Whitaker. We will go into the awards she received for her great work in the last year of teaching kids in Dripping Springs. And as all the teachers throughout the country have done, do extra work, Mickey is no different. So Mickey, thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much for inviting me. I'm excited to be here. Well, before we get into your professional career, we'll, uh, we'll get into why you're on this podcast. It's because you're a 2009 graduate of TCU. So first, why did you decide to come to TCU for college? So my dad is a TCU grad, and I was raised with purple in my veins. We went to all of the TCU home games growing up, even in some of the less pleasant seasons. I I vividly remember my dad having to get a new hat every time that we went to a game because we would be coming down from the upper deck, and if it was a game, he would toss his hat over the side. And then we'd come back the next weekend and have to get a new one. So grew up just as a horned frog, and it was really the only place that I considered. Oh, well, that's that's great to hear that the legacies continue, and especially with Father's Day and not too long ago, that's, that's great that we can share those multi-generation stories and see it, it ran in the family. So you came to TCU a lot growing up, hearing about it from your dad, and then you come and you're a student yourself. So did it live up to the hype? Oh my gosh. Yes. I absolutely love Fort Worth and I love going back and visiting and kind of reliving those college experiences. I just, I cherish my time at TCU. I learned a lot. I have all my best friends from college that I, many of whom I still keep in touch with today. So those were great four years of my life. What was, were you involved in any student organizations or what were some of your favorite things to do on campus when you were a student? I was in a sorority. I was a tri-delt at TCU. So keeping up with with all of that, it was fun. We lived three of the four years in Grandmark. You know, that was built whenever we were there on campus. Mm-hmm. So we went from freshman year, I say we, my, my best friend and I, she grew up in Kilgore with me. And we went to TCU together. And so we roomed together in Colby Hall freshman year and then spent the next three years in Grandmark. So it was nice to just be on campus, it seems like, all the time. That is quite a, a benefit. Close proximity to everything and much easier to uh, get to your classes. Well, yeah, because all my math classes were in Tucker. So I was just rolling out of bed and walking across the street and then coming right back. So you're a, a math aficionado, someone like to say. How did you develop a love for math? I always enjoyed math in high school. It came easily to me and I loved understanding how things just kind of fit together and it always just made sense. It clicked really well until some of those upper level math courses. Once I got there, I was like, oh man, this is not as as enjoyable as it once was. I I always liked the challenge of it, but I knew that at the end of my undergrad degree, that that was it. I needed to go do something with it at that point. 
So what were uh, you thinking you were going to do with this math degree? You know, 2009, I, people told me all through college and I'd say, I'm a math major. And they'd say, oh, you can do anything with a math major. You can do whatever you want to. So I had these high expectations of, I don't know, I would just apply for jobs and people would want me because I was a math major. And it was 2009 and we were in the middle of the Great Recession and I started applying for jobs and hearing crickets, just nothing. And so I packed up my bags leaving TCU and I moved back home with my parents and I knew I had to do something. So I enrolled in the Region 7 Service Center to get my teaching certificate. So I didn't actually go to TCU to be a teacher. I had nothing to do with education. I was just a math major and an economics minor. And so I enrolled on a Friday. I think I submitted my application on a Friday whenever I moved home. And then at church that Sunday, um, we were talking to the pastor's wife, who is an educator. She's a principal at a school in East Texas. And she said, oh, well, I hear that they need somebody in Overton, which is a tiny little 1A school close to where I grew up. And I thought, well, I'm, I'm not a teacher yet. I literally just submitted my application to get into this teacher certification program. She said, well, I'll, I'll call the guy. And I was, I was a summer grad. This, this is August, whenever this happened, okay? And so I get a call on Monday, the next day, from the principal at Overton High School and said, I hear, I hear you want an interview that you're interested in teaching. Why don't you come over here this afternoon? So I drive over to this high school thinking, what am I getting myself into? Like, I have no idea like how to be a teacher. I haven't even taken a class yet. And I show up and he brings me into his office and he starts walking me around the school. I mean, it was a tiny school because it's 1A school. Um, he starts walking me around. He's like, okay, here's your classroom. Let's go get your textbooks. And I'm thinking like, oh my gosh, this is really happening. Like, how is this happening so fast? And so we got back to his office and he said, well, do you have any questions for me? And I was like, yes. Like, do you have anything that I can read about how to be a teacher? And so he gave <laughs> me a book uh, called The First Days of School by Harry Wong. And I read that thing cover to cover like four times before the first day of school. And I was absolutely petrified throughout that first year of teaching. Um, so I was simultaneously teaching my first year and getting my teaching certificate. So by the end of that year, I was completely certified. So how did you learn how to do a lesson plan and curriculum and grades and, and what to do for a test or? So I had a mentor teacher. Now at a 1A high school, there were only two math teachers. The other math teacher was also a first year teacher. And so he had, I guess, let's see, I taught algebra one, algebra two, a class called math models. And then I had, that was back in the tax testing days. I had a tax remediation course where we just kind of prepped those students um, who were juniors for that exit level tax mm -hmm. test. So I had those courses. And so he would have had geometry pre-cal. And I think he also had a tax remediation course. And so I couldn't really go to him to ask for advice. He wasn't teaching the same courses that I was teaching. And yeah, he had no more of an idea of what to do than I did. So I was working very closely with a science teacher who was my mentor teacher. And she helped me through that process. I look back, I only spent one year there. And then I moved to the Austin area. I look back at that year sometimes and I think, oh my gosh, those poor students. <laughs> wow. So what precipitates your uh, move to the Austin area? my husband so he is from marble falls and we were dating he was finishing up at a&m whenever i was teaching in overton that year so when he graduated and moved back to marble falls i finished that year at overton and then moved to austin so that we could be closer together okay and so have you been at dripping springs ever since that move or have you bounced around to get there i so i had that one year at overton and then i got hired at layman high school in kyle texas 
Um, there for seven years. And now I um, have been at Dripping Springs for four years. So I taught at Layman for seven years until my first daughter was born. Um, when she was born, that 40 minute drive over to Kyle every day, difficult <laughs> with a, a newborn and an infant and a toddler in the car on the way over there. And we live in the Dripping Springs School District. So at the end of that school year, I applied here um, and I've taught here for the last four years. Okay. So now I'm gonna ask you a question I'm sure a lot of people have asked in the last year. It's March 2020, and you think you're about to go on spring break. What was that week like for you? You know, I was so oblivious. I mean, when you're knee deep in the middle of the school year, and you're getting ready for um, spring break, and you're trying to get all your students caught up, you don't want any missing work. And I just, I hadn't even watched the news. And I remember I had one of my seniors say, Ms. Whitaker, you know, I I don't think we're going to come back the week after spring break. Do you think it'll just be a couple of days? Do you think it'll be one week or two weeks? And I'm like, what are you talking about? So I went home Friday that spring break and I watched the news and I was like, what is happening? Like, is this real life? And then about, I guess, Wednesday or Thursday over spring break, we got the email that says we are going to put a pause on school for, I guess, two weeks it was. Um, say we'll reassess at the end of that two weeks with the expectation that we would all come back to school and that things would be normal again. And of course, like one week into that two week period, they say, you know what, we can't just cancel school for two weeks, we're just going to go remote. And so we start trying to figure out what Zoom is and get students online and take all of the assignments that we had planned for after spring break and push them um, onto a computer and then try to communicate with students via email. I mean, March 2020, April 2020, May 2020, that was a very rough end to the school year. <laughs> so I love that you're a math teacher because this is the question I've had for a lot of teachers is it's one thing to teach, you know, English and history and every, obviously every subject needs hands-on experience, but it, you really need hands-on experience if you're going to learn math or a science. So how do you learn how to demonstrate how to do math remotely? So this year, last year, 2020, the end of that school year, we would record video lessons and cross our fingers that students would watch them. We also found out about an app called PhotoMath where students could just take a picture of it and it would solve it for them. Because I was thinking, wow, these students, they're doing really incredible. Like, I'm really impressed at how well they've <laughs> mapped material. And then I started talking to one of my students who hopped on Zoom one day. Very few students last at the end of last school year would hop on Zoom and just chat with me. But I had a few who would. And I was talking. I was like, yeah, like, man, that's usually like one of the most difficult things that we teach. I'm so surprised that people did so well considering the circumstances. And this boy was like, Miss Whitaker, you realize that everybody's just taking pictures of that and it solves it for them. And all they have to do is type in the answer. And I thought, oh, no, I didn't know that, but thank you for telling me. We had to really think of some ways to make this school year, 2020-2021, meaningful for students where they could actually learn the content. I was very thankful. We were only remote, fully remote for the first four weeks of school, and then students had the option to come in person. In the beginning, I had a lot of students opt to come in person, and then around Thanksgiving break, it, it really shifted where more students were remote. But I think having some of that time in person really helped to establish what the classroom looked like, even for students who were remote. I will tell you that 
I, I do think it's important for math for them to see problems being worked out. I have really learned how to use my mouse to draw on the computer screen. So I would just hit share screen on Zoom and it would become a whiteboard. And for my students in person, I'd be projecting it on the wall and then students who are remote would be seeing it here. And I would use my mouse and I would work through all of the problems with my mouse. And I had one student who had been remote and came back to person and he looked at me after the first lesson when he was in person, he said, are you telling me that the whole time I was at home, you were using your hand, like your mouse to draw out all of the math problems? And I was like, yeah, you just thought I had bad handwriting. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I got pretty, pretty good at that. And then of course, posting instructional videos where they could replay them and rewatch them and rewind them and slow them down or speed them up if they needed to was really valuable for a lot of students as well. So what was the, what was last summer like for you? I mean, did this, did you research how to do all this? How much extra time were you having to spend to learn how to, to do this whole thing? Last summer was, I think the highest point of my anxiety. I have two young children. And so the thought of them going back to school and me going back to school and not knowing, you know, how we were going to be affected by COVID at that time had me in a bit of a panic. So the research that I was doing was mainly like every day I would Google like, what's, what's the new stuff like COVID and children. Like I, I would Google it and see like, how is this going to be affecting my children? And then I, as we got closer to the school year, I spent a lot of time converting every assignment that we would do in a typical school year on paper, converting it into a computerized assignment. Because regardless of whether students were in person or at home, they were all getting um, an assignment that would be turned in and submitted online. So that took a lot of time. Every, every nap time, every time after my kids went to bed, I'd be working on my computer trying to get stuff set up for the new school year. Wow. And a lot of math is, you know, showing your work. So how can kids show their work, you know, when they're just filling in an answer bubble online? They would take pictures to upload it. Um, and then we got to a point where we would have, and this would be called like scaffolding for different types of questions, instead of having just the question, because they can easily take a picture of it and there's apps that'll solve the whole thing for them. So instead of, <laughs> instead of giving the entire question, what we would do is give like a step-by-step -step process for how to solve the question. And then we would have blanks in line one, blanks in line two, like blanks in different places where it was more like a puzzle. Like, do you understand what the process is and why the process works. If, you, if I give you pieces of the puzzle here, there, and everywhere, can you work backwards? And it really required students to think differently. So many times when we're teaching math, we teach, here's what you do first, here's what you do second, here's what you do third. And students tend to memorize the process instead of the why. Why do we do this first? Why do we do this second? And so we found that by creating these puzzle problems, not only did we circumvent um, photo math, taking <laughs> but it also really required them to think in a different way uh, to understand why these steps work, why the process works the way that it does. And so when you're teaching kids the hybrid model, you said you have some kids in person, some kids remote. How difficult was that to make sure that the kids that were remote were getting the same attention as the kids in, in person? I, it, depended on the student and how much attention they wanted or needed. I would create breakout rooms in Zoom and kind of put them together and then I could pop into the breakout rooms. I had students who were very good at advocating for themselves and so they would remain on the computer and I'd be able to work with them a lot of times one-on-one, -on -one. but there were a large number of students who after a lesson 
when they had a you know, 45 minute block of time, we're on block schedule. So we have 90 minute classes and they were only required, our school re only required them to be online for the first 45 minutes of class. And then the second 45 minutes was considered an asynchronous time period. And so from, from my point of view as a teacher, I encourage them to stay online because that's your opportunity to work on stuff and have some teacher assistance. That's where you're trying to go through the assignment to the best of your ability and have me step in and help you wherever there's questions. A lot of students would just log off, to be honest, and they might be out there in no man's land. And the next class period, I would go through the grade book and see like, oh, this person, this person, this person didn't submit the last assignment. So as soon as we open up Zoom, I'm chatting them in the chat box saying, hey, I know she didn't submit the last assignment. You're required to stay online for all of class today until we get that done. And so it was just kind of keeping tabs on them. And sometimes it would work. Sometimes they'd follow through with that and they would stay online and I'd be able to talk to them and they could share their screen and show me what problem they were working on. Sometimes they wouldn't. Sometimes they would just log off and I would have to take other steps to, to kind of hook them in to get them back where they needed to be on track. So did you see a lot of your, did a lot of your students just look like black boxes with text across? Yeah, that's exactly right. It actually got to be a pretty big issue. At one point, I had asked a particular student a question to no response and messaged them in the chat again to no response. And then I followed up with them with emails like, Are, were you even on Zoom? And then I had a, a girl whose twin brother, they were both in my class in different class periods. She was in person, her brother was remote. And we were talking about this in class. I was like, I just don't know what people are doing at home if I can't see them. And she was like, well, my brother, he goes back to sleep. He logs into Zoom and then goes back to bed. And I'm like, no wonder nobody is answering my questions on the computer. Um, so we talked about this as a school. And second semester, our principal said that if, if they don't have their videos on, you can kick them out of class. So that encouraged people for like a month. They were really good about turning their videos on and then it kind of progressed right back to where it was. So there were some students who always turned their videos on, but there were a lot who didn't. So what would you say as you go through this, what would you say maybe is the one or two biggest challenges you had through, through getting through this whole process? Oh, I mean, definitely keeping track of students and trying not to let anybody fall behind because it seems like there was always somebody who was absent or hadn't completed a few assignments consecutively. And it was hard if they were remote to track them down. That sounds so weird to track them down and get them up to speed. That would be far and away the, the biggest challenge and just not knowing their background. Like by the end of the year, all of my classes, I have mainly juniors and seniors. So these upper level students who could drive themselves to and from school, a lot of them shifted to remote throughout the school year. So I only had five to 10 students in each one of my classes by the end of the school year. Those five to 10 students, I knew them so well. We had so much extra class time. I mean, I feel like <laughs> I will friend them on Facebook years down the road and follow them through their life. You know, like I got to know them really, really well. But these students who are remote, part of me wonders like next school year for my juniors, these seniors who come back on campus, am I even going to recognize them? So it's really hard to to get kids to capture them and engage them when I really know nothing about them remotely. So that was difficult. And then the other thing would just be the time management. It was a lot of time spent outside of school, putting things online and sending emails and responding to emails. So I, I really look forward to this next school year, having people where I can see you. 
let's let's talk about this. We don't even need an email now. Like just just tell me like here, let's make a plan. Let's write it down. Give me some good old fashioned notebook paper. Um, I look forward to that. And as you talk about you know next school year, obviously everyone I think at this point is is planning for everything to be in person as we speak in late June here. What are the lessons you've learned though from the last 15 months that you carry over as we go into a, a more normal environment? So one of the smartest decisions that our administration made um, for high school is they said, don't overteach this past year, stick to the essentials. So as an algebra two teacher, we talked to the pre-cal teachers and said, Hey, here's all of our standards. Here's everything that we teach in a normal school year. What do they absolutely have to know to be successful in your class next year? And we all did this with one another. What do they absolutely have to know? Like strip away all the fluff, get rid of the stuff for the school year that's like nice to know, but not essential for their success later on. And I'll tell you, in a lot of ways, this year was challenging, but that took so much stress off of me as a teacher, I feel like a lot of my students, especially the in-person learners, understood some of our more complex topics better than they had in past school years. I think it's because we weren't rushing them. We were giving adequate time for them to learn this stuff and really deeply understand it. And that's something that I would love to see moving forward. I know that year by year, little by little, we'll start putting some of that stuff back in there. But I'll tell you my expectation I think that next school year is going to be a hundred times more challenging than this past school year. I think that getting everybody back on campus, it's going to be so wonderful to see students in my classroom again and have a full group in there. But I know that a lot of them haven't done normal school for a year and a half at this point. Yeah, I mean, there's just so many students who are going to have to relearn what school is about and um, this idea of of coming to school and staying at school all day, you know, from, from nine to four versus logging in for 20 minutes of each class here and there and kind of having the freedom to do whatever you want, whenever you want. So we've been talking a lot as a school at the end of this school year and some of our summer professional development have, has been geared toward how to build in some intervention time into classes, how to kind of break up our classes because we do have, you know, 90 minute blocks how to kind of break it up a little bit so that it's not too overwhelming for these students who are coming back on campus. So it'll be interesting to see what next year holds. I think it'll be a challenging year. Well, how is that also from a teacher point of view? Because you were told, you know, just kind of basically try to survive this year. And so there's probably a part of you that's like, well, I get to cut that out and that out and that out. So how's that going to be for you that, you know, you, you know, having to go back to the normal, the normal load as it would be? I don't know that we will be able to go back to the normal load in this particular year. I think the gaps are gonna to be too large. I think that we will still try to focus on um, mainly those essential standards that they need to be successful in the next step and then try to work some things back in at, as we can. I think we're talking one, two, three years of getting back to what we were before. Hmm. And so when kids say, you know, why do I need to learn this? I'll never use this again. Did you get to come back with the, we have cut out all the stuff you do not need to know. <laughs> exactly. Like with the, everything I'm teaching you is essential. Like you need this, but that's just, that's a general question anyway. In, in 
years before, you know, there's a lot of stuff that we do in algebra two that if you're not going to be an engineer, you're not going into a STEM related field, you may never use it ever again, but it's that critical thinking. Like it's, it's a brain function, like growing your brain, understanding and learning new tasks and be able just honestly, the ability to learn something new and internalize that and recruiting, I think is so important for students. And I also teach a statistics class. And one of the most interesting things was whenever we did leave after spring break, March, 2020, I had one of my seniors in my statistics class email me and send me a link of Dr. Fauci. He's like, oh my gosh, you'll never guess. Dr. Fauci was talking about the coronavirus and he talked about a p-value and I knew exactly what he meant. I was like, yes, everybody should take statistics because it is far and away the most valuable math course that everybody should be required to take. I don't know why it's not um, a state requirement. Like I just especially after everything that we've been through in the past year and a half, I think that everybody needs a statistics class. <laughs> well, you were also at the end of this challenging year, you were named Dripping Springs ISC Secondary Teacher of the Year. So what does that mean to you to get, you know, it's one thing to be named Teacher of the Year. It's another thing to be named Teacher of the Year in the year we had. <laughs> well, thank you. I still feel a little bit shocked. I teach with an amazing bunch of co-workers. I really do. And I didn't actually realize that my name was on the list of nominees. I had personally nominated the teacher next to me who was a phenomenal teacher, one of my mentors, one of my closest friends. And so whenever we had the list of everybody who had been nominated, I scrolled right through and selected her name and moved on. So when they came in with a bouquet of flowers to my classroom, I couldn't put it together. Like I was in the middle of teaching. I looked up at my door and in comes the principal and a bunch of the HR people around her. And she has a bouquet of flowers. And I'm like, what does that say on it? I just could not figure out what was going on. And I thought, well, maybe the teacher next door won teacher of the year. And I'm supposed to take it to her because I nominated her. She walked towards me. I was like, I didn't even know that my name was on the list. So I am just so incredibly honored to be recognized. I just, I work with so many great people and Honestly, my students make me make me look better. <laughs> they make me look really good. So I'm fortunate. I'm very blessed to teach where I teach and with who I teach and for who I teach. And finally, what are your summer plans? Do you get to have a little bit of a more normal summer this year? Or is it now having to relearn how to go back to normal operation? A little bit of both. So I haven't done a whole lot of planning for next year, mainly because the courses that I teach I either teach with a team, so I don't want to do too much planning before we get to work together as a team closer to August. And then I teach a dual enrollment course through UT and it's shifting. So the first week of July, we're going to see what all the changes are for that course. And then I can start planning for that. So right now I'm just enjoying some downtime with my kids and we've got swim lessons and we go to the park and we go to the zoo and we go to the library and we try to get out and about every single day. Because last summer we were stuck at home and there's just only so much of our backyard swing set and playing in the garage that we can take. So <laughs> we try to get out and about. So yeah, a fairly normal summer. And when, how often do you get to come back to Fort Worth? You know, I was trying to think of the last time that I was there, wasn't there at all last year. And I don't even know if we how went- How many people were? <laughs> and not many, yeah, not, I cannot remember the last, we went to a football game couple years ago and we're planning on going to one this year so I'm excited to to come uh, back. well we look forward to having you back on campus and 
thank you again for all you do for the, you know, the kids in your community. I'm sure hopefully you're getting them to be future horn frogs, not future longhorns, which is obviously difficult in, in that section of the state. But we look forward to seeing you up here in Fort Worth when you get a chance. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Frog for Life podcast. If you or a friend or family member would like to get in touch with us to share your story, please contact us on social media on Twitter and Instagram at TCU Alumni. We look forward to sharing our next story of how TCU Alumni are changing the world.